This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another audio-only episode of the show. We always appreciate you listening along as the opportune team breaks down the biggest technologies, trends, and tectonic plates that are uh, motivating changes to the market, and changes to our uh, larger oil and gas and energy industries. As we break down today's conversation points, make sure that you're heading to our website, per usual, opportune.com. You'll find all of our information on there related to this topic, uh, but also other resources like other episodes of the podcast, articles, white papers, blogs, you name it. You can also find E2B on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations as well as pings when we drop new episodes of the show. So let's jump in. We have a lot to talk about today on today's episode of the show. We're going to be turning to the supply chain for our discussion topic. And our conversation is going to center around underscoring one of the critical aspects of supply chains, which is logistics, and better understand, you know, using as context, how the threat of a rail strike almost forced the supply chain to crumble and implode in on itself. According to the Association of American Railroads, this rail strike that we're referencing, if it were to happen, would have cost the U.S. economy $2 billion per day. So we're going to use this as context to spark a discussion again on how we should be weighing disruptions to logistics in the larger supply chain. And we'll offer some analysis for how to get ahead of some of these disruptions, whether that means creating solutions or mitigating some of the potential damages that are out of any individual firm's control. So let's go ahead and jump in. For insights today, we're joined by Patrick Long. He's a director with Opportune, as well as Michael Wolfarth. He's a manager with Opportune. Patrick, great to have you on again. How are you? Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Always a pleasure getting to chat and pick your brain on this. Uh, And Michael, great to have you on as well. How are you today? Doing great. Again, thanks for having us both on. Absolutely. So again, we're discussing this railroad strike. Um, It was heavily uh, covered for weeks. Um, It still seems sort of up in the air on whether or not the dispute between the rail unions um, and uh, basically the U.S. rail companies are going to come to some final agreement sometime soon. There's still sort of a picking at some of the various uh, concessions. I bring all this up because, to loop it back around to the railroad strike, what made that one so much, uh, I guess, more different, right? Uh, Or more spectacular than the rest, right? This one got so much coverage and there was a lot of attention and there still is reports on any minute update to um, this conflict thoughts here, right? What drew so much attention and why is this one getting an outsized um, lens? Yeah, no, I'm happy to start. I appreciate that. And that's an interesting stat. I had not heard that, that actually rail strikes are up in 
2022, I mean, as if we need something else, right? Coming out of a pandemic and war and then any other crisis that can kind of get thrown our way. So what makes this one so large and so much coverage? Rail is so pervasive. I think that's the simple answer. I mean, in our world within the energy supply chain, um, rail is a huge component. And I wanted just to kind of outline a couple pieces of it. Uh, so getting production in from the fields, right, uh, or, or bringing in things from the, the port. Uh, ports and vessels can only go so far. Trucks have a limited distance. And so rail is a great way to economically move a lot of freight, a lot of raw materials into some storage. And then again, from that storage site into a refinery, into you know chemical manufacturing. And so then once products are made, when you want to get it out to an end customer, the customers aren't always where the production facilities are. And so then it's another transportation to another storage site and then perhaps to an end customer. And so it's a tremendously good way to move large amounts of freight um, economically. And I think why this is so pervasive is that it isn't just some little small thing that only affects one industry. Rail affects us all, especially with consumer goods. And if anything, what we've seen are pictures and pictures and pictures, first of the, the strikes and the backups and the backlogs and the ports. And all of those containers are sitting there, continuing to sit there slowly, you know, the, the stockpiles are dwindling down, but all of those get moved by rail. So I think that's why it's so top of mind. Uh, Mike, is there anything else you want to add there or should we jump on to the next point? Uh, so to build off that, uh, there's some interesting rail stats that, that I like to, to share. Uh, first off, have you ever thought about what's actually just in one rail car? Uh, so you could fit enough lumber for almost six homes, enough grain for a quarter million loaves of bread, uh, and then my personal favorite, enough corn to make 480,000 bags of Fritos. You know, with that, with that being said, uh, railroads account for about 45 or 40 to 45 percent of freight deliveries as of 2020. Uh, you know, their per pervasiveness across the United States makes makes it an ideal form of transportation to deliver goods, as Patrick was saying. Um, in fact, freight trains can move one ton of freight over 450 miles on a si single gallon of fuel. So think about it, you know, 450 miles on a single gallon of diesel is going from Miami, Florida to Savannah, Georgia. Um, also, you can think about the road congestion that is being reduced along with the highway wear and tear. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, if, if a rail freight were to occur, on, honestly, that could cost the U.S. economy uh, upwards of $2 billion per day. And, you know, you bring up uh, some great stats there, right? Rail is still a very dominant part of uh, our larger logistics ecosystem. Um, and so naturally, right, when there is the potential of a rail strike, I guess it makes sense why we start to see so much emphasis placed on transportation logistics, right? There's sort of a, a, a refocus on acknowledging the weight that this one market segment plays. And, uh, you know, it got people forecasting a lot of doom and gloom or supply chain Armageddon, uh, or at the very least preparing for the possibility that that was going to happen. Um, you know, you sort of already answered this, but I guess I want to just reiterate 
were the risks of a few days of rail slowdowns really that high, right? $2 billion a day, naturally, I mean, that's a lot of money. Uh, but when we really think about the domino effects, the ripple effects, were the risks that high, right? Was the sort of Armageddon uh, tone that a lot of the reporting was taking accurate or sort of the, the way that we should have been weighing the consequences? A supply chain works because it's always in motion. There are lots of independent actors that are functioning together and someone is coordinating in each of the respective places in the supply chain to move products from one place to another so they can do something with it, continue to move it on. And so were we close and would we be losing so many billions of dollars? That seems like a large value. I think so, because what would happen is things would start to get kind of gummed up. We would need to slow down and stop production facilities because we could no longer, they were starved for raw materials. These, these companies, whether it's consumer goods, whether it's a refinery, whether it's a uh, chemical manufacturing, you don't keep an infinite amount of supplies around. I mean, just think about your own household. I mean, some people store up, you know, household goods and foods and, you know, for a year at a time. But most of us kind of go like week to week, right? So factories are the same way. You don't want to store all of your inventory as raw materials because of all sorts of things, obsolescence, um, it could go bad, right? Um, or you're just tying up cash. And so because you're always hovering so close and trying to maintain such low inventories, when there is a disruption, you're missing some critical piece. So you could be making some complex good and you need to get that one final component that's coming in via rail. And if that rail is not running, you have 90, 95% of a car or some other very complex you know, good or item that has been produced, but you're just missing that one last bit, but you can't complete it and move it on. So now you don't have those raw materials your production line is essentially clogged because you can't take on something else to produce. And then for everything that is sitting there, especially in this, so thinking about now with like fashion and, you know, even food, there's a shelf life, right? There's seasonality. People want to get things out, get them into consumers' hands. And so, again, if you don't have a way to do it, then you start to lose money and then you start to think about layoffs and lost sales and lost potential. And so then that's where the numbers start really adding up. And let's keep touching on this intermodal aspect, right? You brought it up very succinctly there, Patrick. Uh, you know, every sort of sector of logistics, whether we're talking freight, air, road, or rail, um, it often doesn't play the singular role in getting a good produced, right? Because there is such a I mean, globalized economy, right? Or even within the United States, um, there can be, you know, um, air combined with road and rail. Um, so when we think about the movement of raw materials, the movement of finished goods uh, and everything in between, right? Parts, half completed parts, um, we start to see that if one of the four disappears or faces a massive disruption, the others could be chugging along just fine, uh, but it's still going to have a, a major impact. And, um, you know, I actually myself did some reporting 
on this larger sort of intermodal topic with a focus on um, trucks specifically and, and road logistics. Um, it was on the truck parking crisis and how, you know, uh, lack of infrastructure can create those kind of domino effects. And what it showed me in doing this research um, was that rail, you know, even though it, it plays a dominant role of the various modes of transport, it, it's still kind of at the bottom, right? So, I mean, it's important, obviously, but let's say there was some massive strike of truckers, for example, that would have taken a much larger slice um, of the um, logistics supply chain pie. Now, I only bring this up to draw some comparisons because I'm curious how y'all would, I guess, weigh the various uh, responsibilities of these intermodal sectors, right? Where does rail fit into this? And feel free to give us uh, an oil and gas angle here, right? Um even if it does play a smaller role compared to air and and um, truck um, logistics, transportation uh, and movement of goods, right? What role is that, right? Even if it is a small one. Um, and yeah, again, feel free to intersect some of your uh, industry experience to give us some anecdotes. Okay. So from an intermodal aspect, yeah, like when I, you're right, when I think about intermodal, it's an awful lot of trucks and it's the trucks on the road. And so you talk about strikes, there's a pending UPS strike and there are unions that are lining up to fight against UPS, which is going to be horrible and yet another thing. And they're not thinking that's going to happen until sometime next year. So everyone's just posturing now, right? And that just kind of makes me nervous about the next one. Um, I see rail as the connector here. So let's let's talk about that first. It, it's more of the, the um, <clears throat> less visible aspect because trucks are good for shorter distances. And so you alluded to trucks and parking. There's an awful lot of trucks and congestion on the road, um, but they're going from a terminal to a warehouse or a warehouse back to some kind of terminal for that shorter distance. But those long hauls are still so dependent upon rail. And whether you see the, the trucks themselves that have been placed on flat cars, right, or the containerization, which is just a phenomenal uh, technology advancement um, where you have the containers that come in from the ships, they're put on tops of uh, rail cars, they're taken to a terminal, and then they're immediately taken and lifted and put on the backs of, you know, trucks, tractors, and so off they go. You know, that's that's where I think this comes into play. So thinking about energy and the intermodal aspect, you know, one thing that comes to mind is so when I'm shipping out products, right, typically a refinery will ship things out and it has uh, shorter distances, it'll move it by pipe, uh, it'll move products by rail car, and so for the intermodal, what I'm thinking of are um, products that are more chemicals or lubes, things that start to feel um, more like they can be compartmentalized, packed together, right, in differing amounts. And there are a lot of companies, especially here where we're based in Houston, that do a lot of business and send products overseas. And so I think, though, it might be a smaller part of the larger intermodal chain. It's obviously very important for a certain region, right, because these are finished goods from their standpoint that are intermediates and feedstocks for somebody else, right, and kind of going through. And so that's, you know, as I dig into it more and more, 
you see that there's such a tremendous interconnectedness. And so there's just not one company that controls all aspects of its own supply chain. And so there's always a dependency on some very specialized product or a chemical or, a, you know, a particular lube or, or, you know, something like that in order to feed that overall finished product. And just to paint a, an even broader picture, which seems to be my favorite tagline of today's episode, but, uh, you know, we'll draw in some other context. The supply chain has been disrupted on multiple levels over the last two years, and uh, the labor component is only one slice. We've seen geopolitical conflicts disrupt the supply chain. We've seen, um, you know, uh, freight get clogged up in various canals. Uh, <laughs> that that got some good news coverage. Um, we've seen just inflation in general create disruptions as, um, you know, exactly, exactly. And as prices uh, between suppliers and between, uh, you know, B2B buyers and sellers get more uh, strenuous um, as interest rates go up. And businesses decide, hmm, maybe we won't invest as much because um, a sort of debt financed project is now going to cost us way more. Maybe that means they're now going to cancel uh, one of their partnerships with a supplier. And now those goods aren't moving anymore. There were a lot of logistics companies that were planning on moving those goods, right? I'm, I'm falling down a rabbit hole here, but it's just to explain there are so many factors that can domino all their way down to the supply chain and uh, small niche aspects of the supply chain. So I'm, so I'm curious then, you know, with uh, that complexity, that sort of layering, which components of the supply chain would you say are more affected today Beyond just the obvious logistical components, right? Where are we feeling those pain points most acutely? Is it the logistics side or are there other elements that we need to be weighing as uh, equally as important? Yeah, I'll start with that one. Um, I, I think it comes down to working capital. So inventory, kind of pure and simple. And so just thinking at, about it from a couple of different perspectives. So I'm a consumer. I enjoy going and refueling my car wherever I can, but if there isn't finished product that's getting out to the service stations, there's bags on pumps. And so that's an inventory problem, right? Um, and so these crises, if left um, unsolved, could eventually lead to shortages, right? Allocations and then a, uh, a, a gas station that's really popular and experiencing a high demand won't have the fuel. Um, we've certainly seen this from a consumer perspective for lots of household goods, everything from cat food to baby food, to diapers, to cleaning products, to, I mean, name and pick your favorite crisis, right? Um, <clears throat> that's come along and sometimes there's substitutes. That's great. But for some of these, uh, there aren't, you know, I can only get certain types of fuel for my car, right? If, if I'm, if I'm trucking and I'm moving and I'm, I need diesel, I need diesel. It's not like I can substitute in something else. Um, and so then from a company perspective, so the other side is if I have um, too much inventory, I'm tying up cash. And so as we you mentioned inflation, right, and getting into that, I mean, people want to ride that out and have cash on hand in order to do it. They're cutting back to being more conservative. I don't want to look around my warehouse 
or my storage site and see tanks that are completely topped off and I'm not cycling through and having high turns with that. <clears throat> because that's those aren't sales. Those that's missed opportunities where I could be taking and investing that money and doing something else. So I mean again, I think why this is so important and critical is because it's about the movement of inventory. That's really what it is. We we don't live in a society, as you said, where everything is local. As much as there's a localization movement, there's so much that is still so global that we depend upon, including energy, including our, con our consumer goods, including technology, that we are dependent upon the logistics for these companies to manage their inventory and then get us the products we need when we want to buy them or use them. Just to elaborate, the supply chain is a coordination among many actors and parties, so it re relies quite heavily on the cooperation between each actor and their immediate upstream and downstream counterpart. So when the supply chain is in motion, then it all works well. However, much like we saw with COVID, when one part shuts down, it grinds to a halt and takes a long time to get started again. The reason that is that each actor is providing signals to the others, so there is no referee that blows a whistle to get going again. Each actor has to be convinced by pricing and availability of demand that they can offer their good or service. So if rail had ceased, that it will become a shaken inventory levels, started forcing manufacturers to scramble for alternative means of transportation, of course, at higher costs. If the strike had been prolonged for a period of time, we would have seen sectors of the economy shut down for a lack of feedstocks to continue producing. Yeah, it'd be nice if there were a referee, right? But you're right. I mean, if if one piece starts to slow down, then it takes a while and everyone suddenly jumps off the jumps off the bandwagon. And then you got to be convinced to start back up again. And who goes first? Right. Um, it's just to continue on this um, dialogue of the complexities of the supply chain and how domino effects can be felt across the supply chain, even from other sectors of the, uh, of the supply chain. Right. The logistics component gets messy um and that then dominoes into other sides of said chain so again thoughts here what else was endangered with the threat of a strike uh and connect those yeah. dots for us on how the labor component can impact various uh layers I, of the supply chain i was just gonna say the other the other big thing here with logistics comes with labor we're not in a we're not in an automated world sure there's all sorts of Silicon Valley and tech companies that are pioneering automation and drones for moving freight um, and goods. But no, it comes down to people. And so quite simply put, if there's a strike, there's an awful lot of people who are involved in moving freight. It's not just a conductor and an engineer. There are all sorts of switchmen and rail yards and schedulers and people all along the way whose jobs and livelihoods are impacted. And so if they're not working, they're not spending money. If they're not spending money, then stuff, you know, in their in their local community starts to take a hit. Small mom and pops and, and kind of everybody else in between. Um, so labor's always important. And so when these stories come out, I think it's always just critical to be thinking about that human component of supply chains. Because let's face it, no matter what the technology is, no matter what the enhancement of the process, it comes down to the decisions and the training of individuals. And so this is about, and then thankfully the, the strike and the discussions are such that, you know, it, it, to being averted, it coming down to greater benefits for the workers, right? So that they felt as if they were being treated better and had better working conditions. And then um, obviously then comes with that uh, 
more efficient performance on the job. Well, Patrick, we've been talking a lot of doom and gloom, right? Or at least a lot of weighing potential consequences, understanding uh, the domino effects that come from disruptions of the supply chain. But I want to start to wrap up the conversation by addressing the other side of the coin, which is proactive solutions. Um, any examples of companies or industries that have done a good job of um, mitigating some of the already existing supply chain disruptions, right? Um, but if we start with just, let's say, the labor component here, right, or the potential disruption to railroad logistics, or even more generally, just the logistic slice of the supply chain, what can companies do, in y'all's opinion, and pulling from your expertise, to get ahead of the next potential crises, right, and be more proactive rather than reactive and scrambling to develop solutions once the threat is already in motion? Thoughts? This this was one, I, I equate this in, in some ways to like when there's a hurricane that forms outside in the Caribbean, you know it's headed your way. And as a company, you can choose to do something about it um, or you have to scramble at the last minute, right? And so a lot of companies prepare for this. So when I think about rail and I think about companies and doing just a bit of survey amongst some friends and thinking about some clients, um, if you're entirely dependent upon rail, there's very little you really can do here. Right. You can stock up on inventory, you can stock up on your feedstocks, and you can hope to kind of ride it out. Maybe you slid on your production so you keep everybody employed and you scramble if you can find alternative feedstocks. Great. If not, you just sort of slow things down. Um, the real way, though, is you need to know and what that implies and some of the companies that have done a really great job and do a great job with this. You need to know what your supply chain is. You need to know your options and you need to know where you have some choke points and where you can look and source things alternatively another way, right? And that's that's where the creativity and these unsung heroes come in, the supply chain managers and directors who work tirelessly day in and day out when there is a disruption or a pending disruption to try to arrange and line up alternatives ahead of time. Mike, you wanna pick up on that and uh, expand? Yeah, absolutely, Patrick. Uh, so, you know, these companies rely on real-time data uh, to make business decisions. Uh, there are multiple layers, as, you know, you've heard Patrick talk about it throughout this, this podcast. Um, and, you know, a lot of companies today are using, we'll call them spreadsheets, uh, that, that way of, you know, data analysis. By the time you actually analyze the data, we're already moving on to the next problem. So, you know, one thing that we've built is uh, some reporting around this topic, and there are multiple layers of this being brought into essentially one dashboard. That way you can see it, it's real time. Uh, any issues that should arise will pop out. Um, some of these different categories are the tracking and tracing piece of rail. So not only, uh, you know, seeing on a you know spreadsheet or a tracing software where a rail car is, you can actually visualize it on a map uh, to see origin destination, how far away it is, uh, ETAs, uh, inventory rundowns, so day by day of um, deliveries and receipts, and to get your your ending percentage per day, you can see what's coming in and what's leaving to to furthermore predict out you know how the next 
seven to 10 days are looking like. Uh, one big thing Patrick mentioned is weather. So that's another piece of it. You can, you can bring in the weather side of things, uh, looking at, you know, seven day, if there, you know, is possibly a hurricane coming your way and, and what the effects are going to be. Um, terminal Waycog. So you, you have some reporting around that. Um, I think the historical movements and trends piece of it is very important as well. So you can see, you know, maybe this time last year, how are you trending? Um, but basically taking all that information, putting it into one to give these companies a, you know, a leg up instead of looking in the rear view, they're, they're looking out of the front windshield. Yeah. It, it's really that integration, a company on its own, given enough people could individually find out all these answers, but Mikey crystallized it. How do you bring it all together, right? In one spot and a dashboard, your dashboard of a car has certain gauges on it that you rely on. You don't need everything, right? And there's some things that you wish you had. Well, same kind of concept. Companies, given the circumstance, don't always need to see everything. And so this is a way to kind of hone in on what is most critical and then to manage around that and then return to a bit of a normal state <laughs> whenever we get back to that. And if there was any advice that you had to offer to our audience specifically, which um, was going to be more oil and gas oriented, more energy industry oriented, right? What are some extra layers for mitigating some of these logistical challenges to the supply chain, potential disruptions, right? Areas where they can um, more finely focus their resources and um, their proactive solutions to be most effective. Thoughts? Yeah, probably the the best advice I would give, especially if you have an intensive logistical network that you're dealing with, is to start and ask hard and difficult questions to make sure that everyone on the commercial team is fully aware of said logistical network and that there are open conversations, again, like we mentioned, on where some of those weaknesses might be. Um, coming up and, and doing a survey, are there alternative sourcing supplies? Are there, all, are there, maybe not desirable, but are there alternative logistical means to move product, right? Are there different contracts? And so as you kind of walk through a list, as you think through scenarios in your supply chain, then you should come up with a list of uh, some actions to go and to help kind of step in and start these conversations. Again, you can always work through something. If you're at a terminal and you aren't able to get product to a terminal, there might be another customer that does have uh, maybe a competitor that does have product there and you could enter into an arrangement ahead of time, right? You know, for it. But these, these are all things that you just need to think about ahead of time. It can be extremely daunting, and we've certainly been in places where their logistical networks are huge. So it's a matter of prioritization. It's important just to go ahead and start, though. Start with something small, and then you can continue to ratchet it up. And Mike, any final thoughts? No, I agree 100% with Patrick. I uh, would just say add, you know, syncing with each individual group. I, I've I've been a part of, of that um, conversation where you know, you have different groups doing different things and making sure everybody's on the same page and um, ultimately using the data. Data doesn't lie and data is a great source of, of information to make better decisions. And I think on that note, we'll go ahead and wrap things up. 
Thank you again to the two of you for joining us on today's discussion. Again, we've been breaking down uh, how we should be weighing some of the potential disruptions that uh, we most likely will see at some point in the future, right? Let's just go ahead and plan for the worst, right? But at the very least, weighing some of the uh, more common disruptions to the supply chain that we have seen over the last two years and discussing the true impacts the interconnected nature of all of these disruptions and um, all of the various systems within uh, the supply chain, and then how to begin to create some proactive solutions that mitigate the uh, worst consequences of these disruptions. So thank you again to our two guests. We've been joined today by Patrick Long, Director at Opportune, and Michael Wolfarth, Manager at Opportune. Uh, Patrick, Michael, if folks want to read up more on y'all's perspective on this topic, any um, white papers, research, blogs, anything we can point them to? Oh, yeah. We we have a lot at opportune.com. <clears throat> and then also uh, following us both on LinkedIn, we do like enjoy writing about these topics and then we'll frequently post and uh, push articles out. So please follow us. Fantastic. Patrick, Mike, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again for your time. And we'll catch you on the next episode of e to b i have a feeling uh, patrick you'll be back on again soon so i'm looking forward to it and thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of e to b energy to business an opportune podcast if you like what you heard today and you want previous episodes uh, or you want to uh, dig a little deeper into today's supply chain talking points like patrick said head to our website opportune.com again opportune.com and you can also subscribe to E2B on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so you don't miss out on any, any of our future conversations. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of E2B. I'm going to do that in, uh, outro one more time. I like ate a word, so or I said any twice, so let me do that again. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. If you like what you heard and saw today and you want previous episodes uh, or you want to dig a little deeper on some of the supply chain topics that we broke down today, like Patrick said, head to our website, opportune.com. Again, opportune.com. And you can also find uh, more episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. Make sure you don't miss out on any of the future conversations that we have of consequence in your industry. Again, I'm Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of E2B.